Welcome to the Mark Steiner Show here on The Real News. I'm Mark Steiner. It's great to have you all with us. And let's get ready for another episode of Rise of the Right. We talk today once again with Rick Perlstein, who's renowned for his books like The Invisible Bridge, The Fall of Nixon, and The Rise of Reagan, Nixonland, The Rise of a President, and The Fracturing of America. And before that, Before the Storm, Barry Goldwater and the Unmaking of an American Consensus. And his latest article in Prospect Magazine has an ominous title, You are entering the infernal triangle, authoritarian Republicans, ineffectual Democrats, and the clueless media. Let's talk about what's happening now, about the future, where it may be taking us, and what we might do about it. Welcome back, Rick. Hi, Mark. It's, you know, good to be here. It's like, I feel like every interview I I do, it's like when you go to a funeral, I wish we could meet under better circumstances. I thought about the same thing as we started this. This this whole series I do on Rise of the Right, sometimes it's just, you know, uh, it, it could drive me to drink. <laughs> well, at least you have your Israel-Palestine series to, you know. Uh, yeah, right, that too. <laughs> so I pick I pick the most uplifting subjects. So, <laughs> Tell me about it. Oof. But you've been covering this for, for a long time. I mean, this has been part of what you've been talking about, rising in America. Yes. For, for, for decades. Yeah, I mean, we're, I started working on this stuff in uh, in, in 1996, you know, right at the beginning of 1996 is when I started my Goldwater book. And, you know, it's like if I had chosen a different subject, <laughs> my life would have been very different. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, I really um, I picked a winner, Mark. I mean, it just, you know, really turned out to be something that, you know, was at the center of America's and the world's prospects. And um let me tell you, now I am mostly writing about much more recent history, and it's uh, it's 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 like a emotional live wire for me. I mean, it's it's a lot easier to write about dead people, even when right. they had a profound influence on the present. You know exactly. I mean, I, I understand. I mean, and, but before we jump into the infernal triangle, let me play on what you just said here for a moment. You know, because it, it seems that many of us grew we all, many of us grew up in the era that started during the Depression with Franklin Delano Roosevelt took us through Kennedy in the Vietnam War. And then something, and then something, there, so there's this illusion America was moving to a progressive world and then something shifted. T- talk a bit about that shift historically and what, do you th- and what exactly happened. Yeah, I think that, um, you know, there's this really, really, really wonderful historian, uh, makes me look like a piker named Jefferson Cowie. In fact, oh, yeah. he won the, the Pulitzer Prize this year for his book on this county in, in, in Alabama, since the 1830s and kind of tracing how the word liberty became an alibi for domination. Anyway, he wrote a book called The Great um, the Great Exception. And he points out that this time, which kind of seemed like it was, you know, the way America was going to go in more and more of a progressive direction, turns out to be this strange, exceptional kind of window. And he says a couple fascinating things about why this period from, you know, 1932 to, you know, it's quite, quite, uh, I'll give you a, a very specific date to 1965, okay. uh, was able to, you know, have this window in which America became, you know, much more of a social democracy, much more of a multiracial democracy. Um, there's a couple things. There's one thing he says, and one thing that I will say, Mark, what happened in 1965? A lot of things. But what might have happened to kind of, uh, you know, if I can get Socratic and, you know, this exception of tolerant, cosmopolitan, um, progressive 
social democratic liberalism in America. Oh, you're asking me to answer that question. Yeah, it's kind of a mind. <laughs> well, well uh, it, we had the Voting Rights Act. Right. That is definitely one contributing factor. Right. I mean, remember that, um, you know, what's his name? Kevin Phillips said, don't worry about, you know, the Republicans winning the South. We'll win the South because of the Voting Rights Act, because of the reaction against the Voting Rights Act. Exactly. And the fact that it has happened that the counties that have the most African-American voting are the ones that have the most strong conservative movements. But there's another thing that happened in 1965, another landmark piece of legislation. And that was the one that uh, opened up immigration to the non-European world. Right. right. Between 1924 and 1965, America was basically we had like, you know, very few, if unless you were Chinese, Chinese Exclusion Act, very few immigration laws at all. You just showed up and, you know, proved that you, you weren't infectious, you know, right. and the next thing you know, you're working at a factory or, or a push cart or whatever. 1924, the Johnson Reed Act, inspired by the Ku Klux Klan, uh, basically um, made it impossible for anyone who wasn't from Western Europe to emigrate to the United States. 1965, that was repealed. And the, the, the very dark, tragic point that Jefferson Cowie makes is that it was that window of ethnic, relative ethnic uh, homogeneity which gave Americans kind of the trust to uh, let down their guards and feel like they could share more uh, creepy stuff. Another point I would raise that kind of, you know, helped lead this reaction is it goes a little further. You know, it's the post-World War II prosperity uh, that, you know, really did seem like it would live forever. I mean, America had something like, you know, went from something like 20% of the world's, you know, exports to like 50%. Mm-hmm. You know, we bestrode the world like a colossus. And of course, as every leftist know, that broke down, you know, and the, and, and the neoliberal era of this era of the 70s really was kind of driven by falling, you know, corporate profits. And just to give, you know, a really excellent example of how that enabled a kind of progressive imagination. Do you know, do you know how the, um, not to get Socratic again, but do you know how, um, the freedom budget, which was what uh, Martin Luther King was fighting for, you know, uh, oh, yeah, yeah. when he did the, 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 you know, the poverty encampment on the mall. I was it there. Was this I well, the whole idea of how the freedom budget worked was, do you know what a, this is? I don't want to get too deep in the weeds, but do you okay. know the taxpayer increment financing system? Basically what they said, what, 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 you know, um, the people who wrote it, uh, economists and, and civil rights activists like Bear Rustin, the idea was, they would take the amount of tax revenue America had in 1968 and all the tax revenue above it as, you know, America grew and grew and grew and grew because we, again, bestrode the world as a colossus would be committed to things like, um, you know, building community centers, you know, uh, uh, income supports, mm-hmm. all this stuff. It wasn't like this idea that they were going to, you know, expropriate the rich. It was the idea that America was going to be so rich, we would just make sure that the excess went to the people who needed it most. So, you know, once you get to like, you know, 1973, 1974, 1975, and you get stagflation and you get recession after recession after recession, that idea that the the bounty, that America's bounty could be redistributed in a freer and fairer way is out the window. And you get like this zero sum, you know, kind of idea about economics, Right. And you get the idea that this guy next to me wants to take from me. And if he looks different and smells different and eats different foods and looks different, well, then I better protect me and mine against him. Right. So that's kind of, you know, in a nutshell, 
you know, the Reagan, you know, era. And um, the thing about that that's so disconcerting now is, you know, one of the things, you know, and of course, our you know, the trial, you know, I talk about what happens to the Democrats, too. The Democrats feel like they need to kind of get on board with the neoliberalism. And a lot of it is, you know, kind of bad faith, rich people who just want to, you know, basically have a hand in both parties. But a lot of it is, wow, this New Deal stuff just doesn't work anymore. Look how stagnant the economy is. Right. And I guess, you know, I would, I would maybe, as you've written about it as well, um, would add to that was the civil rights struggle and race and how that yeah, I mean, affected sure. all of this. And yes. And, um, you know, it's a real paradox, right? I mean, progress really does, you know, beget reaction. You know, I, I look at, you know, it's it's basically our, you know, kind of moral imperative as, you know, <laughs> you know human beings born within the ge geographical confines of the United States of America that we repair this breach. Right. But it it, you know, has consequences. It makes it harder you know, for people to just kind of let their guard down. Those those basic kind of lower down on Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right. people just kind of get very defensive. They get very sharp elbows. And, you know, the apotheosis of that is um, they've stolen our birthright, make America great again. And, you know, that's, that's why we have a left. <laughs> and... Um, we have a left to fight the right, but we have a left also to, you know, basically make sure the Democratic Party doesn't become the tool of the right. So in, in, in the, I want to jump into the infernal triangle here, but I have to ask you one quick question. How do, your analysis about how the deindustrialization de of America feeds into that. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's it's quite fascinating. Um, you might know um, a Marxist historian named Judith Stein. Oh, sure. Like, yeah. And she wrote a she actually passed away in the book about Clinton's neoliberalism that just came out with Nelson Lichtenstein, another great, you know, uh, historian of labor called Fabulous Failure was written with her, you know, kind of notes. Right. But she wrote um, she, she wrote a book on the 70s in which she pointed out that, um, again, because of this prosperity, it's like we will kind of, you know, develop the economies of our Cold War allies. And but there was never really any thought for the consequences of basically um, giving them a piece of the industrial pie. And she gives this amazing example of um, this guy, George Ball, who was one of the good guys, actually, who in, in the in Johnson administration, who fought the Vietnam War. But during the Kennedy administration, he was kind of a trade representative and he would have these meetings with um, textile union representatives in which he would show off his British suit. Right. <laughs> and, you know, so, this is, you know, it's, it, 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 or, you know, if you look at, you know, kind of how America, you know, basically industrialized Japan, it's like we need this Cold War bulwark in the East, you know, against the Chinese, you know, monster. And it wasn't that, um, you know, there wasn't enough to go around as it wasn't that, you know, kind of, um, you know, the whole world doesn't deserve to, you know, um, develop. It was that there was, you know, they didn't really spare a thought for, you know, kind of the blue collar industrial heartland, right? Um, it was just kind of, it would take care of itself. It was just one more constituency that the Democrats took for granted. And then you get, of course, Jimmy Carter, who, you know, had 
no interest in unions, you know, completely sold them out consistently, you know, and then you get, you know, NAFTA. And, you know, if you look at, you know, what Bill Clinton said when he signed NAFTA, he, he said it was going to create 5 billion new jobs, right? Who doesn't right. want that, right? Um, so, you know, it's just, it's, you know, a combination of reasonably good intentions, bad intentions, tragic outcomes, unintended consequences, intended consequences, you know, history. And now we find ourselves in, in 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 this infernal triangle that you talk about, which I thought was kind of a brilliant way to look at it. Let, let's kind of break that down for all of us. I mean, in in what right. those three so what parts I'm doing, are. What I'm doing with my life now, you know, happy days, is writing a book about America since the year 2000, um, since basically Bush v. Gore. Uh, and I basically try and create a portrait of what got us to the Trumpian movement that has kind of three broad moving parts. And the one is the one I'm most associated with, which is, you know, what I call the authoritarian ratchet of the Republican Party. You know, I have a theory about why, what it is about conservatism that makes it just more and more and more authoritarian, you know, over the years, right? And, uh, you know, we all know about that. But, you know, the inadequacy of the Democrats in responding to it, right? Uh, whether, you know, they are Boy Scouts who refuse to play, you know, hardball, whether they, you know, kind of take their working class and minority base for granted. I mean, this goes all the way back to the 50s. You should see what, you know, Adlai Stevenson said about the idea of national health care. <laughs> he was, yeah. And, uh, you know, but but that's this, this kind of idea that they're aloof and above kind of the grubby, you know, kind of give and take of, you know, real hardball politics the neoliberalism, all these things we associate with the failures of the Democratic Party, you know, that's the second side of the triangle. But the third part is the one I kind of obsess over most because, it, you know, find, I find it kind of the most depressing and it's the media, right? And, you know, in that first column, you know, I compare, you know, just, just for example, the way the media kind of um, performs a little trick of affirmative action on behalf of the Republicans, when you know you take as your um structural uh bedrock of you know your uh professional ideals as a journalist that each side has to be treated the same <laughs> mm -hmm. but one side lies cheats and steal far steals far more than the other side which you know tends to act like you know boy scouts um then you're actually um biased towards the people who lie cheat and steal right you're not depicting reality Right. And I, you know, literally compare that to the picture that Americans get from the mainstream media, you know, uh, resembles in its accuracy the picture that people get in an authoritarian country where the media is not free. You know, I use the word Pravda, you know, uh, you know, the fact that, um, you know, just to take an example from uh, 2004, right. Um, because the right did such a good job of um, vilifying Dan Rather, who accurately reported that George W. Bush went AWOL from the Texas National Guard, but he used a forged document, which for all we know was a rat fuck that was forged by Karl Rove. <laughs> right. Um, and, 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 and that became, you know, basically normalized as a, as a issue of debate by the mainstream media. There was a poll that, People, uh, more people thought CBS was biased towards the uh, uh, biased against the Republicans than Fox was biased against the Democrats. 
<laughs> and, you know, you see that sort of thing, you know, all the time. You know, George, uh, Barack Obama, you know, passes a tax cut that covers 99% of wage earners. Um, you know, for all of Barack Obama's flaws, you know, he creates a tax cut that gives the average family $1,200 for the, you know, 2009 tax year. And then in 2010, CBS does a survey, 53% of Americans think that their taxes were the same. 23% think that under Obama, they went up and only 11% say they got a tax cut. And, you know, that's because the media depicted, you know, the right wing Tea Party doing what they said they were doing. They said they were, you know, fighting high taxes from Barack Obama, right? So they just laundered a lie. You know, they became the conveyor belt for disinformation. So, you know, you combined all these things together and there's very there's a very narrow aperture for, you know, building a mass public for, you know, multiracial democracy, social democratic policies, um, you know, cosmopolitanism, you know, science, truth, all the things that, you know, I'm proud as, you know, a left-leaning liberal to say that, you know, we need in order to have a healthy functioning society. So what do you, I'm curious how you, where you think this takes us. Mm. I mean, I, you know, as, as we do this, have this conversation today, David Smith of Sinclair Broadcasting, just, who is a, a, a right-wing demagogue, just bought right. The Sun, right. which is the a Baltimore's Baltimore. daily newspaper. Right. Changes. It, yeah, it's it's as if Rupert Murdoch, you know, took over the Washington Post. Exactly. Like. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Well, so, yes, um, The Sun is a newspaper. You know, it's this thing that where they, they it's, it's like there was an old joke. I, wanted, I think it was on The Simpsons. So someone said, uh, uh, what's it? Someone, someone told a, 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 that was a family guy. And the dog told his 20 something that he was dating. She asked what a book was. And he said, it's like a blog made out of trees, you know. <laughs> <laughs> this was, you know, like the early 2000s. Or something. But, um, you know, uh, young people don't read newspapers. <laughs> and, you know, young people, you know, and this is very much my friend Jeff Charlotte's, you know, kind of riff too. Um, you know, young people are going to say this. <laughs> you know, <laughs> the young people who are, you know, basically willing to like, you know, walk into a church and yell at the president about Israel-Palestine. You know, the young people who are willing to you know, um, put their bodies on the line to, you know, uh, when, you know, the State Department is talking with energy executives, you know. Um, you know, one of the tragedies of the Democratic Party is that it kind of holds its, you know, not only its activist base, but this next generation of politicians in such patronizing contempt. I mean, there's a new book by Ryan Grimm about the squad and, you know, the way Nancy Pelosi treated AOC is just your jaw will drop, you know, it's just like, Fear and contempt, you know, of 80 year olds for, for 30 year olds, you know. Um, but, you know, um, if there's a dialectical turn, it's obviously going to come from the people who've, you know, gotten the shit end of neoliberalism, you know, the shit end of climate change. And, you know, just understand that, you know, the old institutional arrangements, you know, don't work. You know, when you when you pedal the bicycle, the chain does not catch on the gear. Right. And, you know, they'll do their own thing, you know, and, um, you know, I mean, the fact that like the Democratic Party has never had the wit to realize that, you know, you invest more in the younger members of the party than the older members of the party who are just going to die anyway. Right. You know, that's a paradox of the Republican Party. Right. They love bomb young people. 
you know. Um, I just met a, uh, read a memoir by a, a young reporter named Tito Wen, who was formerly on the right. And the stuff about um, like the money they showered on her to go to like, you know, journalism camps, to, you know, paid internships, you know, all this stuff that, you know, the investor class, of the Democratic Party doesn't want to have anything to do with it because they can't control it, you know. But, you know, young people find their way to the right values anyway, you know. So if, if if given what you laid out in the infernal triangle, given the, the 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 three parts which you kind of just broke down for us a few moments ago, one of the things I would throw out to you as we're thinking about this is that it seems as if that left liberals, the Democrats in general, have forgotten how to organize. Yes. And totally. And we, as as a former union organizer, community organizer, we invented that shit. That we yeah. we invented that yeah. we did that. And they, they freely admit that they just stole it all from us. You know, I mean, stupidly. You know, a lot. You know, they, they think we still do all this stuff. There's lots of projection. But this Tina Nguyen memoir is um, heartbreaking because she's like she spends all this time on the right. Then she kind of becomes kind of the correspondent covering the right for Vanity Fair. And she goes to her editor and she's like, "Well, I want to um, do this for the left. I want to cover." you know, left, you know, Democratic Party organizations. And the guy's like, great, go for it. And she's like, wait a sec. There aren't any. <laughs> I mean, it's 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 absolutely kind of gobsmacking because she's, you know, kind of naive. She doesn't know much. She's young. Right. You know, she expects to find the Alec of the left. You know, she expects to find, you know, the 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 Federalist Society of the left. You know, and and, you know, they try and create these pale imitations, but they're so you know, kind of tepid and Boy Scout-ish. You know, she, she you know, wants to find the CPAC of the left. You know, like CPAC, it's free for kids to go there. You know, these, you know, it's like Heritage Foundation. They have their own door, you know? Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, you, you talk to, you know, I have, I have a brilliant nephew who's trying to get, he's desperate to get a job within the activist world on the left, you know, kind of an analysis job, think tank job, whatever. And, you know, he's just, you know, he's done so much and he's just, you know, has so many fascinating things on his resume and he won an award for his, you know, thesis and he can't even get an interview. In the time we have left, let me hit two things here before I come back to where the Infernal Triangle may take us as we can close out on that. Why do you think we got here? You know, I think the, the biggest, highest level principle is you remember old Sam Raber and the former you know, Speaker of the House. From Texas, you know, right. Just right from Texas. And, you know, he was kind of like one of these classic, you know, he's probably racist, but, you know, he gave a lot of, you know, white guys jobs. And then, you know, with kind of these New Deal programs, he built a lot, right? And he had a saying, and he passed it along to his, you know, protege, Lyndon Johnson, who really kind of took it to heart. So any jackass can knock down a bar. <laughs> it takes a carpenter to build, right? right? And, you know, a lot of what the right does, you know, it's entropy. They just destroy you know, they, you know, destroy people's faith in government. They destroy regulatory organizations. You know, they destroy anything that's a countervailing power against corporations. Building those things is much harder, right? Building those things requires, requires trust. You know, it requires, you know, kind of reciprocal effort. It requires, you know, leadership, you know, and it requires also a media that, you know, plainly explains what's going on. You know, it's like, here's this, you know, kind of, you know, for, for generations, we learned, oh, well, the Democrats, you know, sold out blue collar factory workers, 
Well, you know, Joe Biden, for all his awful qualities, is creating all these factory jobs for white guys in the South, the Chips Act, you know, but it's just so far gone. People don't even connect the idea that government can do anything, you know, to help them. You know, I once read an article uh, about a guy talking about how he um, was uh, went going door to door. And this is a long time ago in the 2004 election uh, for um, from John Kerry's campaign with undecided voters. And he would say, oh, John Kerry wants to lower your health insurance premiums. And people would he, he said people would look at him like he said, John Kerry wants to fix your deck. Right. The idea that the, <laughs> the government that you hire people in the government to help you is, you know, that's another one of these kind of, you know, chains that slip the gears. We don't even kind of think that way anymore. And that's a project of building. And it's, you know, it's, 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 it's happening. Right. Uh, but it's, it's something that is a generational project. You know, we don't have much time. Well, picking up on that, we don't have much time theme. Um, I, I, you know, and I, I think about, all the stuff you've written, and we, you talk about the one, the the Republican Party, you know, ratcheting and moving towards authoritarianism, uh, Democrats who kind of have lost their way and 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 can, seem to have no no chutzpah. Uh, yeah, that's a, that's a good word, chutzpah. Yes, and then you have the media who's not doing their job. So what? So I'm, so none of us are pressing with crystal balls, but we do yeah. have analysis. You do have a, right. a view, a worldview where we've been. And and when there were, were movements that moved us forward, what do you think it takes us now? What do you, what do you see happening, given that that inferno in the next generation? I think it's um, you know, I don't want to be glib. You know, I've I've already been a little glib by saying you know, okay. the kids are us. But I mean, I think like you know, there are so many geostrategic things that are going around on around the country. I mean, I could see a world war happening. You know. Yeah. Um. So, I mean, this is going to be, you know, like, this is like, you know, maybe like it's an 1860 movement, you know, like maybe it's a 1660s movement, maybe it's an 1830s movement, you know, I mean, it's, this is a big, big moment in history, you know, and, uh, you know, may you live in interesting times that supposed, you know, old Chinese curse, we all have very meaningful jobs to do. And, you know, it ain't fun. Right. I mean, it's like, you know, we're living in the woods, living off the land, fighting the resistance, really. I mean, it does feel like that. I think about this in a piece that I worked on a few years back, which was making an analogy between the Civil War and the post-Civil War Reconstruction period and the period we're in now. Yeah. It, it, and, I, and what form that takes, I don't, I can't tell, but it feels like from, and also what you're saying, that's where we are. We're at one of those precipices. Yeah. I mean, one more thing. It's like, I got to use this because the person who told me it didn't give me permission to use it in my book. <laughs> so I'm just going <laughs> to put it out there and uh-huh. pretend you didn't hear it, you know? Okay, gotcha. But, um, yeah, someone told me about their their partner um, grew up in a conservative home and their um, father would wake them up every morning with a catechism. Say, what is liberalism? Liberalism is a mental disease. And in a way, we have a generation of people who've kind of grown up in that world. And, you know, now, you know, they're trying to destroy us. <laughs> and by the way, liberal means left too. You know, this is a this is a working alliance. If you're a leftist and you think liberals are your enemy, you know, I have no time for that. 
If you're a liberal, if you think the left is your enemy, I have no time for that. Yeah, this you. is popular front time. This is a time for what in my parents' generation they called a united front. That's right. United front. Rick Perlstein, it's, it's always a pleasure to talk with you. It really is. I mean, um, and that your analysis is amazing. Your articles are amazing. We're going to link to all of them here uh, on this yeah, page. Yeah, and if, if you go to um, prospect.org, a splash page will come up, and it'll say this is not a paywall. Then you go down to the bottom, you can kind of click on my column and sign up for it every week, every Wednesday morning. Well worth the read as well. And I look forward to many more conversations. Um, yes, thank you. And I want to thank you so much for your work, Rick, and, and uh, we'll, be, we'll stay in touch. Thank you for this. This is really an important piece of work you've been doing, so thank you. Thank you, Mark. Bye-bye. Thank you all for joining us today, and a special thanks to Dave Hebden for running the show today and editing this program, and the tireless Kettle Rivera making it all work behind the scenes, and everyone here at The Real News making this show and our other shows possible. And we want to thank Rick Perlstein for joining us. We're going to link to Rick Perlstein's stories on the American Prospect on our site here at The Real News. You can catch up what he's saying. He's always well worth the read. Please let me know what you think about what you heard today, what you'd like us to cover. Just write to me at mss at therealnews.com, and I will write to you immediately. And stay tuned for more conversations and stories about the rise of the right here on The Real News and on The Mark Steiner Show. We have a fight on our hands. And for our future, our children's future, the nation and the world's future, it's all at stake. And we here at The Real News will do our part to bring those stories to you. So for the crew here at The Real News, I'm Mark Steiner. Stay involved, keep listening, and take care.